We're now going to spend some time reading from the Bible um, before Scott comes up to talk to us. So feel free to follow along on the screen behind me. Uh, we're reading Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 28. Um, or you can follow along on your own uh, Bible, your phone, or there's um, some Bibles at the back as well if you'd like to grab one of those. So Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 13. When Jesus came to the reason, region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will be, then he will be, then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Good everyone. My name's Scott. I'm the pastor here at Trinity Church Bracca. Really good to be with you this morning. Uh, I want to tell you about a website I stumbled across this week. There's a screenshot from it. The website is jesusis.org.au and the idea of this website is that anyone can go there and just finish off that sentence put in you know what you what you think jesus is and so a bunch of australians have gotten on there and there's a huge variety of responses there's um negative ones jesus is a sky fairy jesus is a crutch for the weak there's some funny ones like people saying jesus is a time lord or jesus is blue cheese what does that mean blue cheese well, i think it means um to some people they love him to other people, he stinks. Um, there's some positive responses. Uh, uh, Jesus is my favourite. Jesus is worth it. There are really there are so many ideas out there about who Jesus is, right? And maybe Jesus is a cool hippie kind of guy, like this statue suggests, or maybe Jesus is an angry dude, like this picture makes it. There are so many ideas out there about Jesus. I wonder how you finish that sentence, though. Jesus is. What would you say? See, how you finish that sentence is important because it's going to affect what you do with Jesus. 
What you say about Jesus will affect what you do about Jesus. So if you say that Jesus is a crutch for the weak, then you probably don't want that much to do with him, unless perhaps you're going through a hard time and you need a crutch to lean on. But if you say Jesus is alive still today, then, well, you're not going to ignore him, are you? Our church here, we've been going through the book of Matthew. It's a biography of Jesus' life, all the kind of things that Jesus did. Uh, and as we go through, we're seeing heaps about Jesus, his, his teaching, what he's passionate about, what his character is like. And today we see he asks his disciples that question, who am I? What are people saying? What do you reckon? And they give their answers, who they think Jesus is. And of course, again, what they say about Jesus is going to affect what they do about Jesus. But the interesting thing for the disciples is it's going to affect them in a way that they never even imagined. And perhaps as we look on and listen today, we're going to realize what we say about Jesus could affect us in a way that we never even imagined. So let's get into it. We start off then with Jesus. He's going on a walk. Um, throughout most of his time in Matthew so far, Jesus has spent time in that little region there in the circle on the screen called Galilee. But now he's heading up a bit further north to a city called Caesarea Philippi. Uh, now, by this stage, the disciples have seen Jesus do a lot of things. They've heard him say a lot of things. And now, though, on this trip, they're alone with Jesus. And so Jesus is in this kind of personal, intimate time. He turns to them and he says, verse 13, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, that's just Jesus' way of referring to himself, the Son of Man. What are people saying about me? They reply, verse 14, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. See, the crowds seem to get that there's something special, something different about Jesus even, that, that you know, he's, he's a prophet, he's important. But they're not totally sure, and there's no consensus across the spectrum who Jesus is yet. But then the next verse, Jesus gets a little more personal. Yeah, that's what others are saying about me. But, but what about you, verse 15? Who do you say I am? No doubt the disciples had talked about this amongst themselves before. On their long walks, going from place to place. You know, already having seen what Jesus has done, they must have talked about this and asked each other, you know, what do you reckon? Could he really be? How do we know? In this moment, when Jesus poses the question, it's Peter who speaks up. Now, this is not unusual. Peter seems to be kind of a, a, a loud character. He's the upfront guy, tells it like he sees it. The kind of guy who's about as subtle as a sledgehammer. And so in verse 16, he says, you're the Messiah, son of the living God. That word there, Messiah, it's full of meaning. If you've been around church for a while, you've probably heard it before. And when you hear Messiah, you probably start to think, well, that's all about Jesus. You know, he's the one that God promised would come. He's the one who rescues us by dying for us. And look, it's not that any of that is wrong at all. But, but back in Jesus' day, that's not what the people thought about Messiah. When the Jews back then heard Messiah, they were thinking about a king. A king who comes from the royal family, from King David's royal family, King David who lived a thousand years before. They're thinking of a king who was sent by God. A king whose work would be to come and do 
what God wanted him to do, which was to kick out the Romans, clearly, to, to give Israel back their national independence. See, we today hear Messiah and we think, you know, a very religious word, all sorts of religious connotations. Uh, back then, they heard this, and, and there was some religious things in it, but, but they're thinking also political things, uh, national pride. And Peter, he says, Jesus, that's you. You're that guy, the Messiah. And Jesus says to him, well, Peter, yes, I am. Except he doesn't, does he? He doesn't say it in those words. Again, at verse 17, look at how Jesus responds. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Jesus is saying, you've called me the Messiah, and that's something you can only know, Peter, because it's come from heaven. It's come from God. God has revealed it to you. It's heavenly knowledge, and you are blessed for knowing this. And when Indy read it out, you see that Jesus goes on. Peter made this confession about Jesus. And so Peter is going to become someone who's a very important person. He's going to have an important role in the church, which is the people who also make this same confession that Peter does. In fact, what Peter's going to do on earth is going to have heavenly and eternal consequences. But here we see this first point very clearly. Jesus is. The Messiah. But like I said before, he doesn't come out. He, he doesn't come out and say that directly. He's not as clear as he could be. Anything? Why, Jesus? Why not just come out and say it even more clearly? Well, the reason is because Jesus is the Messiah. He's just not the Messiah that they are expecting. This is why he tells them in verse twenty, "Don't go and tell this to anyone." Instead, what he does is he teaches them what it means to be the Messiah. And so you see in verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, that does not sound very Messiah-like. Not to the disciples back then. They're expecting, remember, someone who's going to have the Israelite nation behind them and someone who's going to take on the Romans and win and rule in glory. It's going to be wonderful. But Jesus is saying, no, he's not going to have the people on side with him. In fact, the whole of the Israelite leaders, they're going to be against him. He's not going to rule in glory. He's going to suffer and die. When I was uh, about 10 or 12, uh, my parents signed me up to play cricket on Saturday mornings. And I was excited. I loved cricket. I was keen. I was eager. Now, the thing you need to know, though, is the only cricket I was familiar with was the stuff you'd watch on telly, right? Where you got these big grounds and plush grass, grandstands all around. And, you know, when you're waiting to bat, you, 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 you kind of get this little special place, a pavilion where you can sit and it's air-conditioned. It's lovely. That's what I knew of cricket. And so that was the expectation I had when I rolled out for West Coffs Tigers under 12s or whatever it was. You can imagine pretty early on that my expectations were shattered, right? When I got to the ground, no grandstand in sight, no plush grass, 
about a 50-50 ratio of grass to bindies. No air-conditioned pavilion. In fact, you were lucky if you got a tree to sit under for some shade, but my expectations for the ground were completely flipped. Also, my expectation for what I'd be able to do on the first game, I thought I'd go there, score 100 and come back in. I fell about, well, precisely 100 runs short. Um, this is the kind of thing that's going on for the disciples here. Their expectation is being flipped on its head. They had thought they knew what the Messiah would come and do, but now they've met the guy who is the Messiah, and he's not talking about becoming the loved leader of the nation. He's talking about rejection. He's talking about affliction. He's talking about execution. This is not the Messiah they expected. And so good old Peter, our friend Peter, loud, bold, he knows it, Peter. He, he comes to Jesus and he decides he's going to correct Jesus. He says, sorry, Jesus, you've got it all wrong. You know, you're the Messiah here. You can't be rejected. You can't die. You've got to rescue our nation. Come on. In verse 22 here, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. At that moment, what do you think Jesus is going to do? Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, maybe throw the arm over the shoulder. Now, Peter, I know this is hard, but just you know, please listen and, 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 and take in what I'm saying here, won't you? Not at all. Look, Jesus gets heavy. Verse 23, he turns to Peter and he says, Get behind me, Satan. Oh, this is hard. Get behind me, Satan. You're a, you're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. It's not that Jesus is saying Peter has actually become Satan in this moment or, or, or something like that. But, but in what Peter says, Jesus perceives a temptation from Satan. Because this is the very same thing that Satan had tempted him with back in Matthew chapter 4. When Jesus was out in the desert, when barely anyone had heard of Jesus before. The temptation to have all the glory now and just not go through with God's plan. Not to go through with the suffering and rejection and death. That was the temptation back in chapter 4. And that's what Peter is saying here to Jesus again. Go for the glory. Don't worry about the suffering. Jesus says, no, that's, that's not from God. Jesus is the Messiah. He's just not the Messiah they're expecting. Jesus is the Messiah who suffers. At that point, you probably want to think to yourself, well, why? Why has Jesus got to suffer? If he's the Messiah, what's going on here? Jesus isn't suffering primarily as an example for us to follow. As if we too need to go to Jerusalem and find some priests and just provoke them enough until they turn on us. Jesus doesn't suffer just, what to, just to see what it's like. As if God is up there and he thinks, oh, you know, is, is it as bad as all these people make it out to be, this suffering? Jesus, why don't you go on there and just, just test it out for me? Come and tell me if it really is that bad. Jesus isn't suffering because there's something redeeming in suffering, as if in and of itself suffering is a good thing. Jesus is suffering because he's stepping into our place. He suffers because he's taking the punishment that we deserve on himself instead of us. See, last week we saw a problem. Jesus says it's a problem. Our, our human hearts don't honor God. In fact, we're turned against God. We reject him. 
And if you think about that, that can't be good for us, can it? Like, we make an enemy out of the all-powerful God. That can't be a good place to be. In a few weeks' time, we're going to get to chapter 20, where Jesus says that he comes to serve us, to give his life as a ransom for many. He suffers because he's the ransom payment. His death is the thing that sets us free. Any chess players in the room? Anyone who plays chess? No, not really. A couple, couple, okay. I won't make my chess joke, no. I'm, I'm not a chess player. I find it a uh, complicated game. And, but as I understand it, there's a special move in chess. They call it the king's gambit. And the idea with the king's gambit is early on in the game, you sacrifice one of your pieces in the hope that it's going to help you win the game later on. Of course, it's not the king who's sacrificed. Right? It, kings just don't do that, not in chess, not in real life. Yeah, What you sacrifice is just a lowly pawn who goes out there and gets taken off the board. Here is the stunning truth of Christianity. It is the king who is sacrificed. It's the Messiah, the one who is sent by God. He's the one who suffered, who's rejected, who's killed on the cross. Why? He does it so that those, us, the, the, the lowly pawns can live. Those same pawns whose hearts have been turned against him. You see who Jesus is here? He is a spectacular king. Do you see here, friends, the, the depths of his love and his kindness, the beauty of his sacrifice for us? Is there any other king, any other leader at all who is like him? But there's a sharp edge to this too. Remember what we said at the start? Uh, Jesus is... How you finish that sentence matters. What you say about Jesus will affect what you do about Jesus. So if we say that Jesus is the Messiah who suffers, well, what does that mean for us? What's it going to mean that we do? We don't have to wonder about this. We don't have to make guesses because Jesus tells us plainly If we follow the Messiah who suffers, it will mean a life of self-denial. Following Jesus, following the Messiah who suffers, means self-denial. You see this in verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. That last bit there, take up your cross, that's something that we say these days, isn't it? We talk about um, having our cross to bear. And generally we mean that there's something uh, we have to put up with in life, something small, generally something minor. You know, I've got a neighbor, he's got this beautiful front lawn and mowing it once a week is his cross to bear, that kind of thing. Back when Jesus said this, though, it meant something very different. The person who carried their cross was a person who was about to die. They were carrying their cross on the way to be crucified something Jesus himself would do a year or so later. Friends, if we're going to be those who take up our cross, it means dying. Dying to ourselves, dying to our wants and our desires and our plans. And instead, following Jesus, whatever the cost, 
and wherever he takes us. Jesus uses the words of denying ourselves, meaning that I don't take full advantage of all the things I could get now, but I say no to some things, even some things that might be good, because I want to follow Jesus, even if that means I leave things behind, even if that means it costs me. It's a big call. What could make it worth that? Jesus tells us in verse 25, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. That whoever loses their life for me will find it. See, Jesus is pointing us ahead here, pointing us to eternity, life beyond just the here and now. And he says, if, if you try to save your life now, if, if you want to try and get everything you can, pursue all the things you want now, it might go really well for you, and maybe you'll get some of them, but you're going to lose out later on. Well, honey, if you deny yourself now and live for Jesus and follow him, well, then you'll really find true life. Verse 26, what good would it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? You see, Jesus is talking in terms of profit and loss. It's like he's asking, what's going to be better for you? You know, you could have everything you ever dreamed of. But what good is that going to do you? And at the end of time, you're going to stand before God. You could have the whole world there. What good will that do you? Even that's not enough. Have you heard of the um, Stanford Marshmallow Experiment? It was a thing, they were researching uh, this thing, uh, delayed gratification. So what they would do, they'd sit a kid down and they'd put a marshmallow on the table. And so I'm going out of the room for 10, 15 minutes. You can eat that marshmallow if you want. But if you don't, if I come back into the room and the marshmallow is still there, I'll give you two marshmallows. The study on delayed gratification. You can have something good now, but if you wait, you'll get something even better. Friends, that is what Jesus is calling us to here and now in this passage. On a much grander scale. He's saying, you can live for yourself now and you might get everything you ever dreamed of. And in fact, friends, there are people who are paid huge amounts of money to work in marketing departments to try and sell you their stuff or to sell you their thing so that you'll spend your money, your time, your energy on their thing because surely it's going to make your life exactly what you want it to be. But the problem is it won't. Hear the call of Jesus today. Don't fall for their marketing campaigns. Their stuff will not last. Instead, Jesus says, follow me. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. And you'll end up with something that is far better. You'll have your life in fullness as it was meant to be. You will not forfeit your soul, but your heavenly Father will reward you. And you'll be with your Lord forever. Jesus makes a call on us, friends, to deny ourselves. Are you up for it? Is it worth it? Will you follow him? Because the question is, what does a life of self-denial look like? Does it mean that we all end up as beggars on the street? No, I don't think so. 
But the question to ask is this one. Are there things we are saying no to for Jesus' sake? Things we're saying no to so we can follow him. I came across an article this week. Someone was writing about how Jesus has shaped the way their family spends money. And I just, it struck me because it's full of self-denial. Let me put some of it on the screen for you there. They say, now we're paying our mortgage off at an incredibly slow rate, but we're supporting our local church. Now we only have one car, but we're supporting university ministries around Australia. Now our holidays are fairly simple affairs, but we're supporting overseas mission. Now we're spending less on restaurants and clothes, but we're helping the poor in other parts of the world. The gift Jesus gives is greater than all those things. It's the gift of contentment and the ability to say no to something good for the sake of something better. Self-denial. Of course, there are more areas than just money that we can deny ourselves in. And, and you know, self-denial does not necessarily look the same for all of us. It's not the kind of thing where we need to look at each other and kind of compare and contrast. But friends, there is a call to self-denial here. Do you want to follow Jesus? Can I say to you, um, I've seen you taking this call up. I have. Let, me, let me give you a few examples, things I've seen. Um, when I was a 20-something, a, a, a younger than I am, um, uh, yeah, I'm not a 20-something anymore. I know, I know, it's hard to believe, isn't it? Um, when I was a 20-something, Friday nights were like gold. Right? These are the things that, that you were hanging out for. Friday night was the time in the week then everything happened socially. You know what I've seen, though, from our church? Young adults giving up their Friday nights for the sake of teenagers. Crazy, bratty teenagers. Sorry, teenagers, you're not crazy and bratty, but you know what I mean. They give up their Friday nights to run youth groups for teenagers so that teenagers will hear about Jesus. As I understand it, when you become a grandparent, your grandkids are, like, precious a thousand times over. I've seen grandparents not abandon their grandchildren, but but give up time with their grandchildren so they can be at church. I was talking to someone recently who was on a serving team one Sunday morning. They had a really rough night uh, the night before, didn't get much sleep, and really kind of just wanted to stay in bed, but got out of bed to come and serve us on a Sunday morning, self-denial. Many of you, I know, part with your hard-earned cash to make sure that our church here exists by giving. At the moment, I'm on the hunt for a, a new kids leader to join the um, Trinity Kids team out there. And can I say, um, it's hard to find people who are going to be kids leaders because there's a, there's a big sacrifice involved. You give of your time here. You can't just be part of church. You're out with the kids every now and again, or, or every, every couple of weeks. And it also involves sacrifice during the week. It's preparation time. But I want to say, look at the people who are out there now. Well, you can't really see them, but... There's four people out there now who are doing it. And four people in here this week who were out there last week who were doing it. Self-denial. The Christian life is a paradox, right? Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 10, that he brings life to the full 
But also following him means self-denial, it's sacrifice. The Christian life is sacrificial yet filled. It's, it's, it's a filled life even though there is a cost, even though there is self-denial. Jim Elliott was a missionary in the 1950s. and he, In fact, he ended up dying on the mission field. But many years before his death, he wrote these words on the screen. He said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Friends, let's pray that we would. Join me now, won't you? Our gracious and kind Father in heaven, we praise you for Jesus, the Messiah who suffers. The Messiah who suffers for us. Who did not take the easy path to glory now, but who was a man of affliction. I was a man who was rejected. A man who faced judgment that we might not have to. So as we follow him, help us be prepared to deny ourselves as he did for us. Help us follow Jesus no matter what the cost. Please help us see areas in our life where we can do this. Please give us the confidence in eternity so that we would do this. Thank you that living for Jesus is the filled life, even though there is cost. Help us be disciples of Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.